Hello, everybody. This is Tim, or Movie Yearbook. It's the honor roll. This is going to be... I'm playing catch-up here. So what happens every year is I end up... Like, some some movies fall through the cracks throughout the year, and then, like, I end up just jamming them all in, if I can, in the last, like, week of December, because I'm kind of, like, OCD like that, and, like, I need to watch. Before I will be releasing, like, a top ten list the tim's list as i called it um next week on this thing hopefully hopefully by new year's i'll have it out and so i like i i need to so what ends up happening is i just like i just scroll through all these top 10 lists and try to find stuff i haven't seen and so that's essentially what this group of movies is except for antlers which i wanted to see and detention which i really wanted to see and so i will be talking about those here in a second but first you can get access to these and the midwest game nerds bonus episodes and our tiny terror episodes a little bit early by becoming a patreon patreon.com backslash midwest podnet you can also just chip in if you like what we do on the midwest podcast network i'm hoping we have uh some some more stuff coming up at the end of the year. We also have multimedia on there, game nerds, film nerds, all sorts of stuff, fun stuff on there. So check that out. Oh, I needed to issue a correction here. So I've been thinking about it and I am going to put David Bruckner's The Night House on my honor roll from last week. It stuck with me and I realized I really liked it. So, and part of the thing is I'm putting these, these movies that I really like into a group of movies that I really like so I can sort them and then pick from them um, next week. And I already have an idea of what my top 10 is going to be, but I don't know what, I don't know what the bottom of it is going to be. So that'll be interesting to kind of go through. And I will go through my Excel spreadsheets and do so. Um, but yeah, yeah, let's get started here. I am going to start with Antlers. Antlers. In an isolated Oregon town, a middle school teacher and her sheriff brother become embroiled with her enigmatic student whose dark secrets lead to terrifying encounters with an ancestral creature. This is directed by Scott Cooper, who did uh, Crazy Heart and written by Henry Chasen. Nick and Tosca and Scott Cooper starring Carrie Russell, Jesse Plemons, Jeremy T. Thomas and Graham Greene. Everybody. Why is this movie not beloved by everyone? This is Carrie Russell and Jesse Plemons versus a Wendigo. Why did nobody see this movie? Why doesn't everybody love this movie? So I guess it's not fair to say that nobody saw this movie, but not many people saw this movie. It's at about 10 million domestically. 6.6 internationally, 17 million total for box office. And it was released on Halloween weekend. Now, all of this is with the caveat that we are still going through what we are going through throughout the world. But this is also a Searchlight Pictures release, which I think is owned, it's owned by Disney now. It's Fox Searchlight. And those have not done well this year at all. This is actually the second highest grossing movie for them this year behind the French Dispatch, which is the Wes Anderson film, which was also a little bit underwhelming. But they've also released The Night House, Nightmare Alley, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Those are the big releases, and none of them have done well at the box office. French Dispatch has done a little bit better internationally, UK and France in particular. It also had a pretty high per screen average in like art houses, and its box office is comparable to where most of Wes Anderson's movies fall. But compared to his most recent movies, his two most recent movies, it is lagging behind. Antlers wasn't necessarily an art house release, but it is aimed at a horror demographic that is a little bit older. 
Kind of similar to something like Last Night in Soho, which also underwhelmed at the box office, if you are noticing a pattern here. Comparing Antlers up against other Guillermo del Toro-related projects, he produced this, I should mention up front. Um, Mama made $71 million domestic. Scary Stories to Dark was also at about $68 million domestic. Crimson Peak did about 31 So even though Crimson Peak didn't exactly set the world on fire, even this Antlers is down from that movie. I think the reason for that kind of going through it is that is the demographic, the older demographic that is probably more likely to stay home right now, especially now the art house theaters are kind of struggling. Um, also, Antlers and Nightmare Alley in particular, the, the two Guillermo movies, they kind of look like bummers. And I don't think people are interested in going out to see those movies right now. I think if you look at the macro of the box office this year, Spider-Man, of course, is the big one right now. And it just came out as I'm recording this. It came out this past weekend while the current wave of COVID is just surging throughout the country. But it still did insane numbers. I think it was like at 260 million for the weekend. So uh, the question I ask is like, why are some of these movies doing relatively well at the box office and others like Antlers not? So like Venom, the second Venom made about the same is going to end up making about the same as the first domestically. It was down big internationally, but I don't know if that's accurate yet because I don't, I couldn't find Chinese box office numbers. But if you look at the top five, Spider-Man, Shang-Chi, Venom, Black Widow, and Fast 9 are going to end up being the top five domestic movies of the year. And you know, it's a pattern. Four of them are superhero movies. And then, well, Fast is a superhero movie essentially at this point. But what the other thing those big blockbusters have in common is they are what we refer to or what everybody refers to as kind of four quadrant films films that are films that are so the four quadrants are this men over 25 and men under 25 women over 25 and women under 25 now that's kind of it's really kind of a basic breakdown i know um I used to work in advertising and demographics kind of, they get broken down further, like men 18 to 49, men 18 to 34, but four quadrant films like those blockbusters are aimed at all four men under 25, men over 25, women under 25, women over 25. But I think it's those first two quadrants, those two older quadrants, the men and women over 25 that are important when you're talking about the underwhelming performances of certain movies like, Antlers and Nightmare Alley this year. Uh, these movies are aimed at an older audience, and I think you can lump something like West Side Story in here as well, but it's an audience that might see themselves and are a little bit more high risk than the under 25 set when it comes to going out and being in a theater right now. And thus, they are probably more likely to skip out on the theater experience. I also think, and this is going to come out weird, and I hope it but I think there was a yearning for a big theater experience that has been missing for people. And in a weird way that benefited Spider-Man, I actually think you can make the argument that it made more because of what we've gone through the last year and a half. I think people were waiting for this movie. I think some of the Marvel movies like Shang-Chi and the Eternals and Black Widow, I don't think those were as anticipated as a Spider-Man movie. This was like a big Avengers style movie. Fast nine, those movies, it came out that came out a few months ago as well when people were just starting to kind of get back into the groove. But it also, those movies have seen diminishing returns over the past few entries. So in a weird way, I think you could make the argument that, that the pandemic kind of benefited the Spider-Man box office. 
And I think people wanted to go because they wanted that big blockbuster experience to have fun watching a movie with a crowd again. I don't think you get that same experience with something like antlers. This is kind of, this is a bleak horror movie. Um, but what's interesting on top of all this is the horror kind of buoyed the box office as theaters struggled back to life in the beginning of the year. It ended up having a, and this is all from the numbers.com. So showing my work here, but it had a uh, 14% market share, which is its highest market share ever, at least dating back to when I could find the numbers back in 1995. So 14% of the box office was due to horror movies. And it had a, there are 11 horror movies in the top 50, and that's not even counting what I call kind of horror horror adjacent movies like Godzilla versus Kong or Mortal Kombat, uh, movies that, that can kind of be tied to horror. So, Anyway, that's that's kind of a look at the box office for the year, both horror and otherwise, and kind of digging into why nobody saw this movie, really. Um, this is, let's talk about it, though. This is Antlers. It's produced by Guillermo del Toro. It's very well-worn dark fantasy territory for Guillermo. And while it's directed by Scott Cooper, it very much feels like something produced by del Toro. His fingerprints are all over it, but it does feel like a team up. There's enough of Cooper there when it comes to the small town character moments, especially this is a dark fairy tale. Uh, Willie, Nikki and I were reading through the old Hans Christian Anderson version of the little mermaid a few weeks back after we were just kind of hanging out after the show. And it is nuts. The sea witch in it cuts off Ariel's tongue. Uh, Ariel dies at the end. Sorry, spoilers for the original little mermaid, but it's, it's crazy. Um, so this is this is very much in line with those kind of dark fantasy fairy tales like the like the ones of old. I also think there's a metaphor here, the metaphor of abuse. It works well enough. The setting and the ties to the opioid crisis kind of kind of fit it within the time frame of what we are going through, particularly in this country right now. It is pretty bleak at times there too. I think. I think that all of these things are there, but they aren't overwhelming. This is a creature feature first and foremost, and that creature is a Wendigo, and Wendigos rock. So I have a soft spot for movies like this. I think there are good performances across the board. The creature effects and the gore are both pretty good. There are a couple of moments of really great gore in this, if that's if you're kind of a gore hound. The creature design is great, even if the CG was a bit too noticeable for me near the end. Um, so is this on the honor roll? Yes. It's got a trio of great performances. It's a creature feature for adults that has something to say about life in America as well. So yes, antlers is on the honor roll. All right. Let's talk about another creature feature here. The swarm, a single mother's business of a locust farm isn't doing so well. She discovers by accident that blood makes them thrive and does her best to hide her secrets. Directed by Just Philippot, written by... This is a French movie, so should I even bother with these pronunciations? Let's do it. Jerome Genevre, Frank Victor, wrote it. Uh, starring Sulian Brahim, Sofian Kamas... Kems? Yeah, probably Kems. <laughs> Mary Narbonne. Oh, boy. Uh, Lizabeth Locus is a kind of a, a creepy crawly movie about locusts. They say, they say that locusts apparently taste like quail or shrimp, or sunflower seeds. I don't know. I've never had locusts. I've never eaten locusts. I don't know if that means like all three of those things lumped together because those are three very distinct tastes. Actually, I don't think I've ever had quail either. I've had shrimp and sunflower seeds. Um, this is a quote um, 
taken directly from someone who is a, a locust expert eating them. They're more appetizing if you pull off the head, the short legs, and wings. The long legs are relatively plump like chicken legs. Locusts, these are tiny locusts. Um, I was looking, I found out some ways you can eat locusts too. You can make a locust schnitzel. I like a good schnitzel, but you use schnitzel crumbs or you fry in a tempura batter. You clean the locust, of course. Uh, then you dip it in flour, then egg, then seasoned bread crumbs, and you serve with a lemony tahini sauce or a za'atar pesto made more lemony than usual. So there you go. You want to try a locust schnitzel? Uh, there you go. A little. Uh, you can also make an Asian-style crispy noodle salad with locusts. Throw a little garlic, a little olive oil little red cabbage, lightly salt, lightly salted locusts. So don't put too much salt on it. Just, I guess, just like a pinch of salt for the locusts. Green cabbage, crispy noodles, and some uh, sesame seeds. How about that? How about that? You got yourself a nice little Asian salad with locusts. Um, another recipe I found was not locusts, but cicadas, because they're part of the same family. Spicy popcorn cicadas. Sounds delicious. You marinate the cicadas in Worcestershire sauce and you put a blend of paprika, cayenne, garlic, and onion in a batter, and you fry them into crispy, flavorful bites, kind of like a uh, like a popcorn chicken or shrimp, but with uh, cicadas. So there you go. Try those out. Try those recipes out and get back to me. Anyway, the swarm. I like this well enough. Reminded me a lot of the old uh, eco-horror of the 70s. I guess even go back even further, you can compare it to something like the birds from Hitchcock. Um I will say it's a it's a very it's a very good looking movie and there are some pretty nasty moments as it goes along involving the locusts. It is also has a message about not becoming obsessed with trying to change the world by yourself and there's only so much you can do no matter how good your intentions may be. It's good to remember that like you can't make everybody eat locusts, but maybe you can. And maybe you can have someone else eat locusts. So they're eating less red meat. And maybe that's enough. Anyway, is this on the honor roll? Uh, the Swarm is not, but it's all right. It's on Netflix, by the way. So if you want to check it out, if you're in the mood for a good locust horror, check out The Swarm on Netflix. Next up is Detention. In 1962, during the White Terror period in Taiwan, two high schoolers wake up and find themselves trapped on a vacated campus after school. As a series of mysterious events unfold around them, they realize that their hope of escape hinges on finding out what had happened to their friends and teachers while they were asleep. Have they really forgotten what happened, or are they just too afraid to too afraid to recall it? Directed by John Su, written by Shi Kang, Qian Lira. Fu and John Su, starring Giga Wang, Meng Po, Fu, Jing Hua Sen. This is a Taiwanese film. So this is a little bit of background on what this movie is about. It's about the white terror, as mentioned in the IMDb plot description that I just so eloquently read off. In Taiwan, the white terror, it's it describes the suppression of political dissidents under martial law from 1947 to 1987 or 1992. Following the Kuomintang's acquisition of Taiwan, and it resulted in part from the 228 incident in Taiwan in 1947, but it included the repression of Democrats, communists, and Taiwan independent supporters. Tens of, during this time, tens of thousands of people suspected of being anti-government were arrested and at least 1,200, 1200 were executed between 1949 and 1992. The 228 incident is kind of the big thing to talk about here. This was a 1947 crackdown on protesters who voiced discontent 
over the party's rule over Taiwan as it faced defeat by the communists in mainland China. The estimated number of civilians killed in this crackdown ranges from 2,000 to more than 25,000 civilians. Experts say a lot remains unknown about both periods due to the lack of transparency. The government never issued a death toll. It is barely mentioned in history, textbooks, researchers say. The video game, this is based on a video game that I played about a year or two back. And it's very good. I think it's available on, yeah, it's available on Switch for about $12, I believe. And it's sometimes weird playing video games like this because they are so immersive, but they're also very objective-based. And because this has to do with a very dark period in a country's history, it's kind of, it doesn't really settle in because the experience is so visceral, for me at least. Because like, I'm playing this and then two seconds later, I, like, I got to wind down um, and play like Mario Brothers and just jump around cartoon planets for a while. But the the game itself is very creepy. I will say this, I did have to use a walkthrough quite a bit because some of the some of the hints aren't aren't the uh, well they're not there if I if I recall correctly. Like you, you kind of have to search it out, but the game itself is very immersive and and really kind of creepy. Um as for the movie, I really really liked it. It's a pretty great video game adaptation. Um, like a lot of international cinema for me, at least it does get a little tough for me to follow when it jumps back and forth between the timelines. It does. It's a good solid ghost story with something, something to say though. I will say this. It's not meant to be a thorough look at that white, um, white terror period. This isn't a multi-part documentary or a book. It's an hour and 40 minute horror movie. It's a primer. It's meant to bring attention to it and also creep out its audience. And, the audience that is there for a horror movie. And I think it accomplishes that it is creepy. I don't think the effects are great all the time. They are okay. I actually think the game has the upper hand and the creep factor. Um, and it's, and on a more visceral level as well, but there is an existential horror that sticks with you from the film that I didn't get from the game. This film was also banned in mainland China because of the subject matter, obviously. So is this on the honor roll? Yes. I think it's a visually arresting ghost story. It brings attention to a period of time that has either been forgotten or unknown by many, even if it doesn't do so in the most subtle of ways sometimes. All right, let's talk about Agnes next. Rumors of a demonic possession at a religious convent prompts a church investigation into the strange goings-on among its nuns. I don't know that. I got to take a lot of that. A disaffected priest and his neophyte are confronted with temptation, bloodshed, and a crisis of faith. Oh, three, three great tastes. But Tastes Great Together, directed by Mickey Reese, written by Mickey Reese and John Selvage, starring Molly C. Quinn, Sean Gunn, the great Sean Gunn, and Chris Sullivan. I believe Molly C. Quinn was on Castle. I think she's the daughter from Castle, for those of you familiar with Nathan Fillion's work. There are movies that just hit a sweet spot. I've seen this movie on a couple of top 10 lists. And then I looked at the IMDb user, user score and it's at 4.3. So not everybody, uh, this didn't hit a sweet spot for everybody. Everybody has their own unique tastes in things. A lot of it depends on your background, your friends, your sense of humor. I used to work at a video store. I know, very unique. A guy doing a podcast that worked at a video store. I know. But I always used to hesitate recommending movies that I liked to customers. Some of it was just self-confidence, but some of it is everybody has, like I said, everybody has their own taste. I have my own personal tastes. I like a lot of small horror stories, small town horror stories in particular. I'm also not someone who's a big stickler on tone. I like movies that are sad, funny, and scary. 
because I that's life to me. I'm thinking of earlier James Gunn movies. Lucky McKee is another one. That's kind of what this movie reminded me of. I'm also a sucker for religious horror, and there is some of that there as well. I am not... I. I hesitate to like say I'm like a critic. A critic a critic is meant to approach a work of art as unbiased as possible, I think. I I mostly talk about things on here that work for me and why something works for me. I carry my own background and experiences and predilections into everything that I watch, and I think everybody does that, but I try to explain why something works for me. It's the it's sentiment versus judgment. Judgment is judging something separated from someone's own feelings, and sentiment is all about how we feel about something. I tend to lean more towards sentiment, right or wrong. Something that works for me might not work for something, someone else and vice versa. Someone, something that works for you might not work for me. And I think it's important to accept that. Basically, all of this is leading up to me saying, uh, I liked this movie, even though there's a lot going on. This is like two or three movies. Agnes is like two or three movies in one. It has moments of drama, horror, absurdist humor. It's all over the place. But at its core, it's a movie about the importance of human connection. There is also kind of a slapdash DIY indie quality to it where it's it's far from perfect, but it's so different that it stuck out for me. I liked it. But as I was talking about earlier, uh, this is a move. This is the type of movie that I would hesitate recommending at the video store me at least because i would i would i would probably if like i was running around telling people go rent agnes i would probably get a lot of people that would come back with agnes the movie dvd in hand and scream at me for recommending it to them this is the worst movie i've ever seen so i can see why it has a low imdb score it's not for everybody it doesn't really do anything great but it does a lot of things and there's a great bit with sean gunn late in the movie where he talks about how what he is doing, he's doing something that he loves and it's not much, but he makes a living. And sometimes it's great to just take one thing from a movie. And I think that is a, it's a nice lesson to take. So even if you, even, that's another lesson. I, I'm doling out life lessons apparently today, but even if you don't like a movie, if there's a moment in it that spoke to you, try to remember that. So is this on the honor roll? Yes, it's my honor roll. I think that's an important lesson here too. I'm in charge. So Agnes is on the honor roll. All right, let's wrap this bad boy up with Come True, which is on Hulu. I've done a terrible job explaining where you could watch these movies, but that's what Google is for. A teenage runaway takes part in a sleep study that becomes a nightmarish descent into the depths of her mind and a frightening examination of the power of dreams. That's the power of dreams. Directed by Anthony Scott Burns, written by Anthony Scott Burns. And Daniel Weisenberger, starring Julia Sarah Stone, Landon Laborian, Carly Rieske. This is somnambulous horror. Somnambulous horror? Sleepwalkers, basically. A less formal word is sleepwalker. There are not a ton of sleepwalking horror movies. The ones that spring to mind as I think about them are, I guess, Argento's Phenomena, even though that's like a, uh, that's like, sleepwalking and communicating with insects. So it's a little bit of a, uh, it's a little bit of this movie mixed with the swarm, if you will. Uh, of course, Mick Garris and Stephen King's sleepwalkers and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari with uh, Dr. Collar Caligari is the big one here. It's still my favorite. It's one of the first true horror movies. It's one of the first German expressionist horror movies. It's influence can be seen throughout the history of horror. But I think, 
I think if you want to look for a touchdown, Tim Burton is probably the one obvious example here. But it's also it also had a heavy influence on a lot of the film noir movies that would come after in the decades after uh, Nightmare Alley, probably especially. Um, Caligari is a great example of dreamlike surrealist horror, and I think it still holds up today. Ebert, Roger Ebert, called it a uh, his quote was a about its visuals, a wilderness of blades. And I think that's a pretty great description of the sets and the visuals in that movie. And I think it's those visuals that contribute to its effectiveness even today. Why is sleepwalking scary? I think it's probably because like you're never, you're not in control of yourself. So one time I was with a group of friends and we were sharing hotel room. We were on a trip and we were sharing a hotel room and it's a group of about five or six of us. And we were on like the fifth or sixth floor of the hotel and right outside our window was the balcony that kind of just dropped straight down into the lobby. So there was nothing beneath it. And one of the people we, I was with and we were all with slept walk out into, and he just fell asleep in, uh, I believe like the stairwell and woke up. It was horrifying. Like, Oh my gosh. Cause you have no control over where you're going. So anyway, that is why sleepwalking is scary. So is it scary in Come True? I liked it. I didn't love it. It's got a really good score, musical score. It's got a synth. I'm kind of feeling that that synth style score maybe is past its due date, but I still like it. Pilot Priest is the synth pop duo that does the score here. The director of the movie, Anthony Scott Burns, he claimed to be, he claims freaking Kubrick in Cronenberg. Of course, uh, as uh, his influences here. And yeah, I this reminded me a little bit more of like early Tony Scott. I'm thinking The Hunger. Um, maybe even, it honestly reminded me of the Ridley Scott Apple commercial from the Super Bowl in like 1985. He also, Anthony Scott Burns did a Tron fan film. And I think you can see that influence here as well. Especially like the character wears a, uh, wears like a Tron outfit at one time. It may have been left over from his Tron fan film. But there is a coldness to it. Um, it's kind of sexy though, which is nice. There's a sex scene in this movie. I used to, I've talked about how sexless movies feel lately. This one, this one had some, uh, if you're looking for that, uh, I had some, uh, some nice, uh, <laughs> I gotta stop. Uh, Julia Sarah Stone, coming off really creepy. Uh, Julia Sarah Stone is excellent here. Lead actress. She anchors the movie. She deserves special mention. She ties in well with what I was talking about with the German expressionism and kind of silent horror um, that I was talking about earlier as her performance is almost silent horror-esque in her look and her movements. It's a very, very strong lead performance. Oh, and Tiffany, Tiffany Helm, who plays Violet in Friday the 13th Part 5, the greatest of the Friday sequels. Uh, she also deserve, deserves, she has a cameo in this movie and she deserves special mention as well. So come true. Is it on the honor roll? It's not. It's okay. It's on Hulu. So if you uh, if you are interested, um, yeah, like didn't love. So let's wrap this bad boy up. Antlers on the honor roll. The swarm. No. Come true. No. What were the detention on the honor roll and Agnes on the honor roll. So three movies on the honor roll. And that's kind of how things go for me at the end of the year, because I'm catching up with stuff that is seen as good and people tend to like, and I dug this batch of movies, even the stuff that I didn't put on my honor roll, like I still kind of enjoyed. 
I didn't, I didn't regret watching it. I never actually, I shouldn't say, never say never Sith and absolutes and all that. I rarely regret watching horror movies though. So there you go. That's it. This is the end of the honor roll for this year until next week when I unveil my top 10 of the year, the Tim's list. And so it's like, yeah, like the Dean's list, even though I doesn't, that doesn't, I know it doesn't make any sense. I don't care. Um, but we are also going to be on the, uh, on the, on the flagship, on the mothership. We are doing our, we've got a Christmas episode and we're going to be talking about Christmas evil, or we have talked about Christmas evil, depending on when you're listening to this. If you're a part of our Patreon, you are, you're listening to this right now and we still haven't released it yet. If you're not, then you're probably listening to it after. But we've got some fun stuff for the end of the year. And yeah, I will be revealing my top 10 list next year, which is taken from this batch of movies that I have pulled out and called the honor roll. This has been very fun for me. I'll I'll continue it next year. My goal for next year is to kind of keep up with these movies as they come out. I've been playing a lot of catch up um, toward the end of the year because I was a little bit slow at the beginning of the year, but I, part of my goal, I want to keep up with horror movies as they come out. Some of the theatrical stuff, I'll probably wait until it hits VOD DVD because I don't get out much. I mean, I'm a guy who is doing a singular horror podcast, a single person horror podcast. So yeah, I obviously don't get out much, but some of the big movies I, I would like to see in the theater and we'll, if Willie and I see them, I will probably I'm talking specifically about scream. So like we something like scream. I think we both want to see, so we'll do it together. But a lot of this is for me. I'd like to keep up with stuff that kind of falls through the cracks and maybe bring some attention to it, or maybe learn something myself and hopefully everybody else with me. <laughs> it's very long winded. I don't know why I'm, I'm padding this. All right, everybody, thank you seriously for listening, and I will see you next time.